Hi, FreshEd listeners. It's Will here. The FreshEd team is taking a break this month from producing new episodes. Instead, we're busy working behind the scenes, getting ready for the new year. We have some great interviews in store for you starting in February. Until then, we'll play some of our favorite reruns for you. Before I go, I wanted to invite you to take our audience survey. The survey will help us learn more about you, no matter how long you've been a listener or how frequently you listen to this show. So please take a few minutes and visit freshedpodcast.com survey. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com survey. You'll also find a link on our homepage. And of course, you can complete the survey anonymously. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. On Sunday, Germany's Social Democratic Party voted to enter formal talks with Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union to form a new government. It's been nearly four months since the Germans voted in September. One reason Germany has had difficulty forming a government coalition is because of the rise of extremist parties. The alternative for Germany, a right-wing extremist party, is the third largest party in government. Given the circumstances, I thought it would be timely to replay my conversation with Cynthia Miller-Idris. Our conversation focused on her book, The Extreme Gone Mainstream, which looks at the far-right youth subculture in Germany. The book will be published in February by Princeton University Press. Cynthia Miller-Idris is an associate professor of education and sociology at American University. Cynthia Miller-Idris, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, thank you. How has the stereotypical image of a neo-Nazi changed in recent years? Well, um, if you look at stylistic uh, uh, changes over time, um, you know, what people used to think of as a, uh, as a sort of skinhead look or um, uh, the, where, it, you know, just the physical appearance of a skinhead who had a bald head, a bomber jacket, high black combat boots, that look has sort of all but disappeared um, in Germany and in most of Europe. And it's been replaced with um, a whole fragmentation of subcultural style in the scene. Um, you know, there there are lots of different aspects of of the of different styles that I could talk about. But um, it, taken together, they are um, they represent a kind of mainstreaming of the style and um, uh, a much less distinguishable appearance and a more subtle um, kind of coding uh, of the ideology through symbols. And what are some of these coded symbols that you find in in mainstream commercialized products yeah. that that signify this right youth culture? So you know, one of the ones that um, uh, I use is some of them are very um, direct, uh, you know, coded symbols for you know, um, like text that says "My favorite color is white," you know, or something like that in English, right? Um, but uh, sometimes it's a symbol like uh, one that I often use for non-German audiences because it tends to be still familiar is um, a symbol of a little fox, like a little image of a fox, and underneath it it says Wustenfuchs, which means desert fox. Desert fox was the nickname of Erwin Rommel, um, who commanded sort of the Nazi troops in North Africa during World War II. And that was a, it's a common name, and people would know 
Um, but, you know, people would, would recognize that name as his nickname. A certain generation of Americans tends to recognize that, too, um, for example. But, um, but, but just seeing a little picture of a little fox um, walking toward you on the street on a T-shirt, you know, might not, you might not catch that right away. And what about codes like 88? Yeah. So codes like the alphanumeric codes, what I call them, things like 88, which stands for the eighth letter of the alphabet, for HH, um, uh, for Heil Hitler, and, uh, you know, the, the, the number 18, which is for AH, for Adolf Hitler. Those codes have been in play for a long time, um, even under the Nazis. Uh, and so they kind of predate the commercialization um, that really began in earnest in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, but they, so they don't show up as much in the, the sort of new brands, but they do still show up um, in kind of tattoos, sometimes in license plates, um, in, uh, in other kinds, of, sometimes in the t-shirts themselves, but not the ones in the major brands usually, um, because they're, they're so common now as codes that they're less, um, they're less intriguing for companies that are trying to more subtly code um, uh, their products. So what what are some of the new brands um, using to subtly code their products? Well, I would say, you know, a lot of the, what the new brands are doing is using um, sort of motifs that appeal to the far-right scene um, that get kind of adopted by the far-right scene um, you know, so so a lot of Nordic imagery, for example, um, where you know uh, Viking imagery and the Vikings in Nordic um, myths and legends have long been a part of far right nationalist um, sort of mythology and ideas in Germany. So you'll see a lot of that. I mean, it's really dominant, and you know that that kind of those symbols also again were used by the Nazis. Even the swastika is a Nordic symbol. Um, you know, the, the SS, uh, the symbol of the SS, the Zig, Zig rune is a runic symbol, a Nordic runic symbol. Um, so there is, again, a long history of that. It's just done differently now, not as much with the direct symbols as it is with the kind of the use of Vikings, the use of lots of Nordic imagery, snowy ski slopes and boats and images. So on the one hand, there's that kind of thing. And even the names of some of these brands um, that are marketing to more far-right consumers use Nordic spellings in their names or use the products are named after Nordic gods, for example, or goddesses. Um, so Nordic imagery tends to be a really big one. Um, you also see um, sometimes military, um, the use of military coding, military imagery, um, colonial references, um, you know, references to to uh, the U-boat heroes, um, things like that. So not as, you know, I mean, and again, it's very carefully towing the line. Um, there's, you know, one product, uh, for example, um, from one company has the word um, svastika with the Swedish spelling across the back, um, you know, which would be illegal if it were written in German and Hakenkreuz, but it's it's uh, the word for swastika. So, you know, a careful towing of the line of legality, but also, um, you know, kind of using symbols that by, by writing it in Swedish, not everybody would necessarily recognize what that symbol means. And what are some of these brands? I mean, are these the, like, big brands that everyone in Germany would know about? No. Um, so, you know, the, the largest brand um, that markets 
that has a market in the far right is called Torsteiner. They are the only one that have their own physical stores. Um, And, you know, it's always a big question um, in Germany is how many people know the brands. I mean, uh, you know, when I talk to people in this in this sort of anti-fascist scene, they say, oh, everyone would know it. You know, a lot of people who once you know it, you know, if you follow the local news in the cities where they've opened, there are often protests from the left um, protesting the opening of a store like that. And so, you know, it does sort of make a splash initially in the news. But then, you know, I have, you know, lots of friends and colleagues um, when I gave a, when I did a fellowship year in Germany two years ago and presented on this work. I don't think any of the Germans in the room um, had heard of it. So, you know, it was, um, you know, it, it's not as well known as people think it is. I think um, in Berlin, where, you know, a couple of stores has, have been open, people did tend to know it more. But then when I lived in, in, in other cities, it wasn't as well known. And who are the audience that these companies are targeting? Like, who are the people wearing these products with far-right symbols embedded in them? Well, it's also a bit of a mystery because, you know, in terms of empirical evidence, we don't have, you know, data on the consumers, so we don't know officially. Um, But you do, you know, from my interviews with young people, um, you know, and from what I know, uh, you know, media reports and what we know from observations of far-right festivals or music concerts, for example, um, you know, it, it does seem to be a consumption pattern that's more young adolescents. So, you know, so 13 to 15 year olds, 13 to 16 year olds, I think would be a pretty big market. Um, but they do have some of them have women's lines. Um, the largest one, Torstana, for a while had a children's line. That's not um, on the market anymore. But uh, so, you know, one thing people have told me is that um, you will go to these concerts and sometimes see, like, you could see a young family kind of walking around. Like, part of the the idea of the, uh, you know, having such high quality and expensive clothing in these brands is that you could market to an older consumer. But I'm not sure that that has played out in in actually the consumption patterns of, the, of its consumers. Have you noticed if there's um, any sort of class issue associated with um, those who purchase? Um, I haven't. This I propaganda. Mean, again, we don't know. Um, you know, we we know very little about the actual consumers because that data is not publicly available. But um, it is very expensive clothing. Um, you know, a T-shirt might be thirty euros. Um, jeans, a pair of jeans, could be you know eighty euros. I mean, it's it's certainly not um, inexpensive clothing. Um, and so, you know, it is the kind of thing like either people are, um, uh, you know, having a more of a disposable income themselves, or they are saving up for it. Um, in some cases, you know, in the interviews that I did young people got them as a gift, you know, so it might be something that they got as a holiday gift from someone, um, from an older sibling or a parent um, who either didn't know about the, especially the one that, you know, when you have physical storefronts, who either didn't know about the background of the brand or it didn't matter. Um, So, you know, I think the more expensive items would be more special items, but um, uh, certainly, you know, young people are uh, apparently willing to spend money on higher quality clothing from time to time. And what about location-wise? Is this a phenomenon more prevalent in, in certain parts of the country rather than others? 
Um, so again, we we don't know exactly on in terms of consumption patterns. The stores, the stores that are in Germany, um, more of the physical stores are in the former Eastern states. Um, but uh, but you know it's hard to say. There is a big internet presence. I um, heard from an anti-fascist. Uh, activist who said she stopped some French tourists at one point who were leaving the store um, in Berlin and said, you know, did you know that, that this is the store that you just, you know, purchased? She was worried that they, as tourists, had walked into the store, and which looks, you know, very mainstream. And they said, oh, yes, we know, you know, we came here on purpose for that. So it had, you know, there were no stores in France at that time, and they sort of made a de deliberate trip um, to Berlin to go to the store. So, um you know, so again, I'm really cautious about, about, I think you have to be really cautious about what it means that the stores are, you know, where their physical location is, because I, I'm, I suspect that that's not where the primary, um, you know, consumers are. I think it's probably internet-based. And has anything changed in Germany in, in, since the 2000s that has made this rise of the commercialization of, of right-wing um, symbols yeah. emerge? Um, so actually, I don't think the change is in Germany itself. I think the change is in a younger generation of youth um, who are, are, are sort of culturally different from previous generations in their desire, you know, the sort of millennial youth or even the, the group is coming after them who, um, who want to be able to not be pinned down to only one identity, if that makes sense. So I think that um, whereas, you know, my generation of kids kind of grew up and you were very much um, stamped sort of a punk or a skater or a preppy, you know, the 1980s and 1990s um, saw kids, you know, kind of letting their subcultural style reflect one core identity. And maybe that changed over time, but for a period of time, there was kind of one identity. And I think that what we're seeing is um, potentially more an example of young people who want more fluidity. They don't want to be defined only by one identity. And so they may be trying on um, identities, but they uh, are not necessarily um, you know, interested in being only one thing, if that makes sense. So on one day, they could be the, the quote-unquote, nipster, the, the neo-Nazi hipster, and then the second day they can be a some other identity. Well, yeah, potentially that kind of thing, or even, I think, more during the day, they can, you know, go to their apprenticeship site as a worker, you know, but their jacket is zipped over, over their T-shirt that might convey kind of ideological beliefs, but then they can go out with their friends later and and kind of um, take their jacket off, let's say. So it's more that they can um, blend in um, and uh, can, they don't have, to, you know, I mean, the, the skinhead identity was, um, the skinhead, you know, phenotypical appearance, it was very, you know, you had to look like everybody else. You had to be kind of, it was like a uniform, right? You had to um, shave your head, buy a bomber jacket, wear these same boots that everybody else wore. You looked kind of identical to everyone else. So, you know, you can, even if you're in the, the far right scene, you know, or, or have those beliefs all the time, there are different ways. Some of the products are a little bit edgier, you know, they're um, uh, a little more rebellious, let's say. Some of them are a little sportier. Um, 
so there's sort of a range. Some of them are more provocative. Some of them are less provocative. Some of them are, you know, uh, just have a brand logo that um, is now identified with the far right scene, let's say, but is not doesn't have anything else, you know, on it. There's no ideological symbol at all, no coding at all. So um, it just it gives them a chance to kind of um, I think I think it's part of its appeal is that you're you're able to express a little bit more diversity within the scene and also um, uh, move between different identities, even in your daily life, without um, as much difficulty. Germany has been in the news lately. Um, I recently read an article in the New York Times about uh, the publication of Mein Kampf, um, Hitler's book, uh, and also lots of anti-immigrant protests that have been yeah. kind of rocking the nation. And what do you think the connection is between these commercialized symbols of right-wing extremism and this sort of rise of anti-immigration and xenophobic culture that um, we've been seeing uh, more and more in the news lately? That's a good question. Um, I think... Um you know, I, I think that the, so on, just on the rise of, of xenophobic sentiment in general, or, or really anti-Islamic um, sentiment, I, I think that part of what is um, happening there is a, a kind of a grappling with serious change in um, in a demographic reality in, in Europe in general, and in Germany in particular. So um, you just are seeing, you know, uh, 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 from a from a moment, you know, not so long ago when Germany was, you know, widely sort of politicians and leaders would say we are not a country of immigration, um, you know, to kind of an acknowledgement that they are a country of immigration. And so there's, you know, there is just a, a I think, a period of adjustment to that. Um, I think that, um, so I think that there's some, and, and then, and then the, the, the migration crisis, the refugee crisis over the last year, you know, 1.1 million refugees coming into Germany, um, you know, has brought that into sharp relief. But I think it's something, it's a it's a trend that's been happening for a long time in terms of, um, you know, adjusting um, from a society that was pretty um, homogenous to a society that's quite heterogeneous. And I think that that's um, you know, one of those stumbling blocks that you're going to see is um, there's a lot of work to be done kind of in civic education, um, uh, you know, both in the, the public education level, but also in the general public about, you know, what it means to live in a place that has a much more multiculturalism. Um, and Go ahead. And of course, this is quite similar to to stories that you hear coming out of France and Poland yeah. as well. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's a, you know, really Europe, I think it's the question for the next generation in Europe is um, is going to be this question of how, of, around, around diversity, um, ethnic and racial and linguistic diversity and what it means to be European, to be German, to be French, um, and, you know, how you can um, move together harmoniously as a society, you know, across across um, increasing difference. So, you know, I think it's going to be a fascinating, um, you know, 40 or 50 years. And 
hopefully one that can be marked by, you know, by more harmony rather than more violence. Um, but I think that what you see when you see these sort of Pegida protests or protests of, you know, when you're getting tens and, and 50 or, uh, you know, a thousand people in the street um, is is the scope of that. I mean, I think politicians have to pay attention to that, to how emotional, um, you know, ordinary Germans are about these changes and, and really find a way to open the space where people can talk openly about what it is they're afraid of. And, and um, you know, and that's not so different from what we see in the U.S. Um, when, you know, you see uh, Islamophobic things happening here and then reports that, you know, the vast majority of Americans have never met someone Muslim, right? So, um, you know, I think people are afraid of what they don't know. Let's let's shift gears to your book. Yeah. Um, and you happen to collect thousands of images over the years, over decades, yeah. um, to explore this right wing uh, youth culture. Yeah. Um, how did you end up gathering all of those photos? So um, I didn't collect them all myself, uh, and um, the photos themselves are from over decades. But I've only been I've been working on the project myself for almost a decade, about about eight years. Um, what happened was uh, actually my editor for my first book asked me to look for a cover photo for the book um, while I was in Germany. And so I went, uh, I was in Germany on another trip unrelated to going to a conference. So while I was in Berlin, I went to this archive um, in Berlin called the Anti-Fascist uh, Educational and Press Archive in Berlin. It's a wonderful little archive run by uh, mostly leftist, anti-fascist um, folks who have been tracking the right wing in a whole variety of settings. Um, the far right wing in, uh, you know, from everything from flyers, you know, they just have uh, books and materials, all kinds of things, including, um, you know, all of the original product catalogs um, from the very beginning of, of these major companies. I mean, so they've been incredibly helpful to me. So one of the things I did, I, w I went to that uh, archive and I talked to them. I'd met them before in my research and I said, you know, I'm looking for a photograph for this. Do you have any recommendations? And and uh, they put me in touch with three professional photographers who follow the right wing in public settings. So public protest marches or music festivals or um, and, you know, just document it. And they sell their photos to the news media, basically. Um, and I got in touch with those three photographers and said, I'd be really interested in looking at your photographs. Because while I was looking um, uh, to see, you know, first of all, to see if I could find a, a photo for my book. So they all gave me access to their archives. And as I was looking through their photos for a photo for the book, um, I discovered that since I had last been there, it had been four or five years, um, that they were capturing these changes stylistically in the scene that I hadn't really been aware of when I finished my research um, just in 2002, 2004. Um, and so I started to look more carefully at those images, and I asked them for permission to analyze them, and they generously gave me access to those archives. Um, and so that's how it started, with these professional photographers' archives looking through those images for stylistic changes and for symbols. And then I went back and, um, you know, uh, digitized those product catalogs and started capturing screenshots of um, of the commercial websites and and had to go look at some historical archives to try to understand the usage of the symbols, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s as well. Uh, and there, there's quite a lot. There are collections in... Um, 
you know, uh, the U.S. Library of Congress, for example, that were confiscated um, by the U.S. military after World War II, uh, just, you know, photographs, um, thousands and thousands of photographs. So there's uh, it's sort of, it's, an, it's one of those projects that you can endlessly collect data for, unfortunately. <laughs> and so you've been able to basically track the changes in far-right youth culture since the 1930s. Well, yeah, there's a there's a gap. I mean, I didn't look at images between, say, World War II and the 1980s, 1990s. Um, so I look at, I just looked, I was interested in looking at, um, once I started understanding, you know, seeing these symbols, um, some of the same symbols that were used, um, you know, in uh, World War II, I wanted to see, for example, could I find evidence of the use of these runic symbols? And so looking back, um, uh, at some of those images, uh, just to try to understand them in their historical context um, was helpful to see something like, you know, at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, they have still photos of propaganda films shown to Hitler youth. And so you could see how Viking imagery, for example, and Nordic lore was used um, in propaganda films. And so that's been very helpful for me to understand that this isn't just an invention um, of of the 2000s of this of this century, but it's something that's been a long long been a part of of nationalist and extremist thinking in Germany. So um, so it's not so much that I was tracing the transformation over time as I was trans tracing how to some extent some of the symbols in play today are rooted in longer trajectories of of historical usage. You also interviewed students, right. and now why did you um, end up? interviewing students. How does that fit in with all of these so, images yeah. that you've collected? So when I first started this project, I had a big question about, you know, my big question was, could I, would I write a book or could I write a book that was based on the images alone? Um, you know, uh, for lots of logistical reasons, that was appealing to me. Um, you know, I was in the middle of another project at the time, as I you know, mentioned to you on the transformation of how knowledge is produced in U.S. higher education. Um, that's a big project at the Social Science Research Council. It just wasn't, for lots of reasons, a good time for me to take on a, a big transnational project. I'm in a full-time faculty position. I didn't have a sabbatical coming up, right, to, to start running something in another country. But I was increasingly dissatisfied with only analyzing the images, and I just felt like, you know, people kept saying to me things like, well, do kids even know what they're wearing? Do they know what these brands are? Do they know what the symbols mean? Um, and I couldn't answer any of those questions for myself or for um, anybody else. And um, because there's not real data on the consumers themselves, um, I really felt like I, I needed to show some of these images to a group of youth um, who are in or around the scenes and, and see what they thought. Like, do they actually un interpret these images the way that I think, that, you know, so I can decode them, you know, um, as, a, as an analytical academic, but does, what does it mean in everyday life? Uh, and so, you know, I have long been interested in the vocational system. The, um, I've been studying uh, for my first book. Um, uh, one of the schools I studied was the construction trades. Um, I knew from previous research that construction trade apprentices have higher uh, levels and have, re have reported, at least in some studies, higher levels of xenophobia. Um, so in, on the one hand, I thought that schools, those kinds of schools would be a good place to get access to youth who might have some experience either themselves or through siblings or friends or neighborhoods um, where they might encounter these brands and they might have um, be able to be kind of interpreters for me or, or help, help me understand if they understood the symbols at all. 
Um, but on the other hand, I'm also interested in, you know, I am a professor of education. I'm interested in how schools respond um, to things like this. And so I also wanted to know what the schools were doing. And um, so I found these two schools that are the only two schools for construction trades in this region. And and um, they one of them happens to ban all ideological symbols from sort of the left or the right um, uh, or military content for that matter. They're not allowed to wear any symbols and the other doesn't ban anything. So I thought it would be kind of an interesting uh, quasi-experimental design to see what happens in those settings and our youth um, uh, you know, modifying what they do or covering up the symbols and in what ways. And what have you found? I mean, do yeah. students know what these symbols mean that they wear? So, um, I mean, I'm still in the middle of analyzing the interviews. They're all transcribed, and we're um, coding them now and analyzing them. So, so I don't have, you know, systematic numbers, but I'll say it's a real mixed bag. Like, they tend to recognize the brands um, as what they call, the word they most often use is racist, right? So they tend to recognize the brands as racist, but they don't know why. I would say that's the most common response, right? So they recognize that mm -hmm. they are deemed somehow racist or unacceptable, but they don't really understand. They can't explain why. Some of them are very well informed about it um, and can really, you know, almost all of the images are, you know, can, they can interpret them the way that I think they're interpreted. Um, some of them know almost nothing and can't and don't interpret any of them. Um, so there is a real mix, and that's that adds an interesting dimension to it. And some of them can't interpret them, although they own it, right? And so, you know, it changes a little bit how you think about the clothing if some people are buying it, primarily because they see the brand around or it's very popular in their neighborhoods. Um, they get a sense that it's sort of anti-establishment, um, and they know that it's banned for some reason, but and they and they might not exactly know why. And what about the school's response? Has it been successful for schools, or at least the school that you looked at, to ban extremist symbols? Um, so it's a good question because you have to say you have to sort of determine what does success mean, right? So if if what you're saying is it's really important for us as a school community to set a firm to symbolically mark what it means to be a part of this school and to symbolically state, you know, um, that these kinds of ideologies aren't welcome here and that everyone is, you know, so that nobody feels um, uncomfortable because of what they see on a T-shirt, then yes, it's been successful. Um, if, you know, the intent of the ban is to, um, is to try to prevent any further you know, then I, then I think no, it's not successful. I mean, I, I don't think the bans are are successful at prevention, but I do think, and in fact, I think the bans in some cases backfire um, because young people just get more creative with the way, and the companies get more creative with the way that they um, make the symbols. So one of the brands, for example, a popular brand in that scene um, made a Velcro Velcro removable logo, right? So the, you know that young people could take it off as they go into school, and then and then young people started turning it around so that if it used it originally looked like an A, uh, and they turned it around so supposedly it looks like a, a V for Fatherland, right? So they they modify and and creatively engage with the symbols when they're banned. And I think that's part of why there's a market for products like this, because, you know, it is banned. It's illegal to have a swastika. Um, it's, you know, to have uh, some of the more common symbols. And so there becomes, a, you know, a market becomes, um, a market emerges for uh, more subtle coding. So 
Um, so no, I don't think they're successful, but I completely understand, you know, at prevention, but I understand the impulse behind them, you know, as a philosophy in terms of what the school stands for, if that makes sense. Your book makes a contribution to the ideas or the theories of culture and nationalism and, and extremism. How would you kind of define that contribution that you make to those kind of three large academic ideas? Um, sure. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I, I consider myself to be a cultural sociologist. I'm really interested in engaging with um, uh, with theories of culture and how culture works. And so one of the things I take up um, in the in the in the book is um, is a sort of longstanding debate about whether culture has autonomous power, um, if that, uh, you know, and and without going into too much theory, um, it's kind of a discussion about um, you know is social structure or social structural issues more powerful motivators for human behavior and or or does, can culture have power on its own and and what role do symbols play in that I guess is um, uh, uh, really important. So one of the things I argue is that um, symbols themselves are sometimes the motivator. They're not just a kind of a subset. Um, they're not just a tool, um, but they can sometimes be um, themselves, um, you know, uh, they can have constitutive power on their own. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the interesting things I try to argue is uh, also about the economic objects themselves, um, uh, should be studied for their symbolic value and the ways in which they can constitute identity. So, um, uh, you know, sociologists have long understood economic objects really through an exploitative lens for good reasons um, and have been caught up kind of in Marxist understandings of what economic objects do. And um, one of the things I try to argue is that economic objects can also have constitutive power in shaping consumers' identities. So, you know, and we know this sort of intuitively, and there's some work looking at things like, you know, the eco-movement. What does it mean to buy green? Does purchasing green products make you feel more like, a, you know, an, an ecological person? Um, um, but it hasn't been something that we've really taken up as sociologists in any more significant ways. Um, and so I'm hoping that this book will do that. Um, in terms of engagement in extremist groups, I feel like one of the things I'm trying to say is that um, there are, you know, it's, it's not only political motivations that draw people into the scene. And I think particularly for young adolescents, um, cultural motivations need to be understood as, as a part of, um, as a mechanism um, that can draw people in. And we can look at these scenes, you know, the two big themes that animate my analysis of the symbols are kind of belonging and protest. So on the one hand, the way these symbols facilitate a sense of group identity, um, the consumption of these products help, con you know, con contribute to a sense of belonging to peers and, and um, of group identity. But they also, um, are mechanisms of protest against mainstream society, who many youth may in, in these settings may feel let down by. Um, and I think those mechanisms of belonging and protest are really powerful, have explanatory power in really, you know, in really powerful ways for how young people engage with the far right and potentially with other extremist movements. Um, so I, I argue that, you know, it's not just, this is not just subcultural style, but it can be a powerful kind of gateway um, to radicalization and violence um, in a variety of ways that we have to pay more attention to. 
Well, Cynthia Miller Idris, thanks for joining Fresh Ed. Happy to. Thanks for inviting me. Cynthia Miller Idris is Associate Professor of Education and Sociology at American University. Her forthcoming book, Extremism Gone Mainstream, The Commercialization of Far-Right Youth Subculture in Germany, will be published by Princeton University Press later this year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.